We're continuing our series uh, through the book of Acts, and we're talking about how the gospel uh, is for everyone. It goes into all of the world, and every uh, kind of person uh, is someone whom Jesus wants the gospel to go to. And it's been encouraging to me as we've studied this book. I hope it's been encouraging to you. It's been great to be reminded that all along, Uh, Jesus is orchestrating this mission, that he's the one working behind the scenes. And that's encouraging to me, knowing as we start this church, that we have a risen Savior who is seated at the right hand of God, who is orchestrating this ministry even today. And it's also been encouraging to learn from the early church, to look at the context and the people and the methods and the ways in which the apostles and disciples of Jesus have been sharing the gospel with everyone that they encounter. And that's been good for me. Like as we are starting this church, as we're trying to bring the gospel even to our neighbors, it is good for us to look at the early church and learn from them how to do it. And this morning, we're going to look at this passage in Acts 14, where the apostle Paul is going from city to city, town to town, sharing the gospel. And in fact, in in Acts 14, he's going to come into this town called Lystra. And in Lystra is the first time in which we see Paul go into a city where there isn't a Jewish synagogue. Like, he, he doesn't have anywhere to begin. There's no Jewish people there to say, hey, you know about the Old Testament God. Let me tell you now about Jesus. There's no one like that. And so he goes in to this pagan community who are deeply religious, but they have no understanding about the God of the Old Testament, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. And as we look at this passage, I think that it's appropriate for us to say, what do we need to learn here in Mayfield Heights? What do we need to learn for here on the east side of Cleveland, where many of our neighbors, like the people in Lystra, don't have a category for the God that we worship? But nonetheless, just as these pagans worshipped Zeus and Hermes and other gods there, our neighbors are, in fact, deeply religious. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes, but I just want to say this. The religious culture around us, people might think that religion is going away. But in fact, it's, it's more present now than ever before. The question is, what are we putting our hope in? Is it God? Is it Jesus? Or is it something else? And so as we look at chapter 14, the big question we have to ask is, how are we going to reach a religious community like ours today? What is it going to take to reach a religious community who doesn't believe in the gospel? Well, as we look at this chapter, there's going to be four things we're going to look at. That's right. Not three points, four points today. We're going to see that it, it, it's going to take starting new churches, seeing where there's hurt, uncovering their idols, and giving them what their hearts long for. So if you want to write those down or follow along with notes on the back of the bulletin, that's where we're headed. What does it take to reach the religious? <clears throat> it takes starting new churches, seeing where there's hurt, uncovering their idols, and giving them what their hearts long for. Let's read Acts chapter 14, page 538. 
Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea, and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave them without witness. For he did good by giving you rains in heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask through your spirit that it would enlighten our eyes and our hearts, convict us where we need convicting, and encourage us where we need comfort. All through your son, Jesus. Amen. So what does it take to reach the religious with the gospel? Well, first, it starts with starting new churches. This is the pattern that we see in chapter 14. Paul goes from town to town, sharing the gospel, making disciples, and then at the end, we read that he goes back through the towns that he went, encouraging them, strengthening their faith, and setting up elders in the churches. This is Paul's pattern. 
all through the book of Acts. He goes from town to town, sharing the gospel, making disciples, and starting churches. But this isn't just the pattern of Paul. This is the pattern that Jesus gave to his church. If you think of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, when Jesus calls his disciples together and says, go now, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Even in the commission, Jesus's pattern for the ministry of the church is to go start new churches. Because that's what the Great Commission is. Go to a new city, make disciples, baptize them, so bring them into a community with a new identity, and teach them. Jesus is saying the mission of the church is to start new churches. If you were with us several weeks ago for our congregational meeting, I shared that one of the five-year goals that we have at Story Church is to plant a church, or at least have a plan put together in which we can execute that planting of a new church. Our desire is that all over the east side of Cleveland, every city would have a gospel-believing, missional, neighbor-loving church where people can do just this, hear the gospel, be baptized, be taught in the ways of the Lord, and be encouraged in their faith. If we want to reach our neighbors, we need to be about starting new churches. And, and that starts on an individual level, right? I mean, it doesn't just start one day, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and say, all right, let's start planning a church. No, it needs to start small. It needs to start with individuals. Because as individuals at Story Church, as you and I multiply our faith into the lives of our neighbors, well, well then our groups are going to grow. And then we'll begin to multiply our story groups so that at different pockets around the area, there are communities of Christians gathered together. And then as those grow and are active and are multiplying, well, then, then we're set up to multiply our church, to send a group of people and say, all right, now you go make disciples of that city, baptizing them into the church, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. If we're going to reach our neighbors who are religious with the gospel, we need to start new churches. Now, you might object, saying, like, look, Jeremy, I, I look around, I do a Google search, and I search church, and there are plenty of churches. Why do we need a new church? Like, I, I get that objection. It makes sense, right? Why would we just add more churches? Why can't we revitalize or strengthen or grow the churches that are already there? That's a good objection. But I want to offer three counterpoints. I want to say why maybe that's not the best way to think about it. Because statistically, if you look at the numbers, church planting is the most effective way at making disciples. If you just look at the numbers, it is church plants that actually bring people to faith more often than already established churches. And so here's three reasons why I think that we ought to start new churches. New churches tend to be better equipped to welcome new residents moving into the community. 
New churches are, are typically better equipped to welcome new residents who move in. Why? Well, the established churches who have been there for a while, they have set culture. Like, there's already relationships there. There's already a history. And it's really hard for a new resident to feel like they belong and are welcomed if when they show up, everything's already set. One of the beauties of Story Church is, like, we're constantly growing, and we're constantly being shaped, and we're constantly adapting who we are to best fit the needs of our community. And so anyone that moves into the area who's also new, well, there's a place for them here. And so new churches are better equipped to invite new residents to join them. But secondly, new churches also, uh, on average, the attendance age level is younger. And, And with that comes youthfulness and fresh ideas and new vision. Because the churches who have been established for a while, like they're burdened with the thought of, well, we've just always done it this way. I don't think we should do that. Like that's, we've never done that before. We've always just done it this way. I don't want to try that. But with a new church, like we don't have a history. There's nothing that we've always done it that way. And so we're much more able and flexible to try new things, to see, hey, does this work? It might not, but we've got the freedom to try and fail and learn from those mistakes. And so with a new church, you get younger people, fresher vision, new ideas, and we can try to reach our neighbors in creative ways. And then finally, new churches, they, they tend to, sorry, let me, yeah, okay. New churches tend to attract new Christians because of all those things. And they do attract new Christians who come to faith for the first time. And the reason why that's helpful and beneficial is that new Christians are more likely to have friends who are non-Christians. Compared to established churches where people were grown up and raised up in those churches, and oftentimes their relationships, their friendships, are already within the church. And so new churches are best equipped to reach non-Christians. Because as non-Christians become Christians, their social network is fertile and ripe for the harvest. So that's why we need to start new churches. We see this pattern in Acts. This is the best way that we can reach our neighbors. But we have to do it together. We, We all have to join together and invite neighbors into a new story shaped by Jesus. That's the only way that the statistics actually work. So what do we do then? If, if we're convinced that we should start new churches, what now do we do? Well, that's what Paul shows us. Because he comes into the city, and the first thing he does is he sees where there is hurt. We see that. He comes into Lystra, and there's this man who's crippled. He's never walked before. And Paul looks at him intensely. He sees him and sees that he's got this hope, this faith to be made well. It's wonderful that the first thing that Paul does, he goes into the city, it's not to stand up on the soapbox and say, hey, I've got the answers, listen to me. He comes in and he's got eyes to see, where is there hurting around me? Where is there pain? Where is there suffering? The first thing he does is not go in and say, listen to me. He goes in and says, 
can I listen to you? Can I ask you questions? Can I learn from you? Where do you see hurt? Where do you see brokenness? Where do you see pain? How can we be a presence for good here? I think that's a radical shift to the way that we tend to think of starting churches or missional activity. Our first objective is to go in and take a posture of humility, ask questions, and learn. I said a couple weeks ago that increasingly so, our neighbors no longer have a common understanding with things that we believe as Christians. Like when we could talk about God with them, we're probably talking about two different things. Or when we talk about Jesus, they have this preconceived notion of who Jesus is. And it's not who we believe Jesus is. And I think most especially when we talk about sin and, and, and being guilty of sin before a perfectly holy and just God, well, they have no category for that. I mean, they probably believe in right and wrong, but any sense of feeling guilty before God in the way that we read in the Bible, that's just not what they hold on to. So we're oftentimes speaking past each other. But one thing that we do have in common with all of our neighbors, one thing that is true both for Christians and non-Christians, is the reality of pain and suffering. Look, there's no denying that pain and suffering are real and that they terribly affect all of us. And so Paul moves in with this posture. How can I connect with them? Well, let, let me look and see where is their hurting, where is their pain, and let me help. Let me ask and learn where can we be a place of hope for our neighbors. When we first moved to Mayfield, one of the first things that I did when starting this church was write down a list of community leaders, Mary DeSico, Councilman uh, Balistre, Superintendent Kelly, Principal Evans. I, I wanted to meet with them, these leaders of the community who knew what was going on, who, who had a pulse on the dealings of the city. They, they knew what was good and what was hard. They knew what was beautiful and what was hurting. And I sat down and I asked, what is wrong? You know, wh wh where do you see brokenness? Where do you see things not working the, the way they should work? That's what we want to be here for, is for good, to help. And I've shared this before, but I heard this over and over again. The top three things facing our community that are broken and, and, and pain and suffering are racial tensions, mental illness, and alcohol and drug abuse. Like, those are probably true of a lot of communities, but those are what each of these community leaders highlighted as the areas of brokenness in our community. We want to position ourselves as best as possible to move towards our neighbors who are hurting and love them. I think a challenge for each of us here is to find for ourselves, who can we talk to? Like, who could you go and ask them, hey, what do you think is happening in our community? Do you know the leaders of your community? Do you know your mayor? Email them, set up coffee. They would love to get to know you. Do you know who leads your, your community Facebook page? Go talk to them. What do they see as good things and hard things in the neighborhood? So that's, that's your challenge. Go 
Take a posture of learning. Have eyes to see where there's hurting. And then the second question to ask yourself is, when you do see that hurt, when you do see that pain, is your first response to say, well, there goes the city. I better start finding a new place to live. Is your response, man, this city isn't the way it used to be. No, it's really going downhill now. Or is your response to say, how can I help? How, how can I be a force for good? How, how can I help bring hope to the city? And that's what we want to be at Story Church. We, we say often that we are here for God's glory and for the good of our neighbors. And so like Paul, we want to go in and have eyes to see where there is hurt. But we can't stop there. Because even in this passage, after Paul does this, he has the opportunity to speak, to speak up about what's going on. And so we can't just stop at moving towards people with, with hope. We have to actually proclaim a message. And the message that Paul proclaims, as he's saying it, he is uncovering their idols. He's uncovering their cultural idols. And we see that as the city comes and tries to actually make an offering because they believe that, that Paul and Barnabas are Greek gods. Paul says, this is crazy. I'm, I'm a man just like you. And he says this. Uh, sorry. He says in verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? Why are you doing these things? We also are men just like you, of nature with you. But we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul's gospel proclamation to this community begins with uncovering their idols. It begins with saying, stop believing in, stop worshiping, stop offering sacrifices to these things that are empty. They're vain. They're futile. There's no power behind them. Instead, turn and begin to worship the one true God, the, the one God who he was the one that made the heavens and the earth and the sea. He's the one who has provided everything that you have. Turn and worship him. This is how the gospel goes into a religious community. You come in and you begin to start a new church. You, you look for where there's hurting, but then you learn who the people are and you begin to uncover the idols of the neighbors. You, you begin to uncover the cultural idols. And you might think, well, Jeremy, we live in 2021 in Mayfield Heights. There, there's no one around us worshiping idols. What do you mean by that? Well, you might be wrong, actually. If, if, you know, if you know one of the many Indians or Indian Americans that live in Mayfield Heights, in, in the Gates Mills Tower, you might know someone that actually does worship an idol. Look, there's a huge Hindu population in this community. When Sarah and I lived in India, I, sh I shared the story once of we were on vacation, and the house that we lived in for that week, there was, there was actually a closet with shrines set up with idols so that any other Indian on vacation could make sure that they were worshiping idols on vacation. In Parma, there's a Hindu temple where Hindus, our neighbors, go and worship idols. So 
we do live in this community. We do live in this type of thing where we are tasked with uncovering these idols. But even if we don't bow down to an actual idol, I think we need to broaden our understanding of what it means to worship an idol. We have to enlarge our understanding of what it means to worship and be religious like this. I like this definition of idolatry and, and religion that the author and pastor Tim Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God. He says that religion is any belief system of ultimate values that shapes our pursuit of a particular kind of life in the world. This is the reason why it is quite fair to call secularism a religion. It is this pursuit of a particular kind of life, and that pursuit then has rules and obligations, and it shapes who we are and what we do. And so, friends, we live in quite a religious community. We all have this vision of a good life. We all have this vision of pursuing something that will, that will bring us joy. And we construct a way of living, a way of believing even, to help us in our pursuit of that life. That's what it means to worship an idol. In Lystra, their idols, their religion, it was directed towards these gods who would provide rain and, and good weather so they could grow crops and, and, and grow food and survive. That was their religion. They wanted a bountiful harvest. That was their good life. But what is it for you? Like, what is your good life that you're pursuing? Is it great wealth and security? Is it companionship and love and commitment? What is it that you're pursuing? What is that vision of the good life? We not, might not worship the same gods today, but we've certainly replaced old idols with new ones. Today's idols, they need uncovering. There's this great book called Seculosity that talks about all the various ways in which we've replaced old idols with new idols in our world today. And the author says this. I, I love how it, it sort of pairs up with Tim Keller's definition. The author, David Zoll, says, in our striving for that good life, we are chasing after this sense of being good enough, of, of having enough to satisfy us. He says, if you listen carefully, you will hear that word, enough all over the place, especially when it comes to anxiety and loneliness and exhaustion and the division that's plaguing our moment. He says, you'll hear it when you see people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some kind of benchmark in our minds, well then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, then we would be enough. 
What is it that you want enough of? Is it happiness, wealth, love? Fill in this blank. If, if I only had this, well, then that'd be enough. I'd be set. We moved into the city to start a story church. And we've been trying to look for ways in which we can help our neighbors where they're hurting. And as we gather here on Sundays and as I meet with friends and community members, I'm trying to uncover the idols around us. But honestly, if we're going to reach this community with the gospel, we have to start here. We have to start with ourselves, uncovering the idols that exist in our own hearts. We, we need to become a community, a church that believes that Jesus is enough and being with him is enough. So that as we invite neighbors and they see us uncover our own idols, that gives them the safety to uncover it themselves. We have to start here. We have to start admitting where our hearts are longing for something that this world just simply cannot give us. Well, the good news, friends, is point four, is that we do have something to offer. The thing that our hearts are longing for, we have, and we can give it to our neighbors. What is it? Well, let's keep looking. In verse 15, Paul goes on to say that the one true living God, he is the father of our Lord Jesus. He is the one who has made the heavens and the earth and the sea. And he's the one who's made all of that that's in them. He didn't leave these pagans, nor has he left you and I without any witness to his power. But his beauty, his wisdom, his power is plainly seen all over creation. He lets it rain on both the good and the evil. He has blessed us. He has provided everything that we need. In fact, Paul says that uh, the things that he's given us, they satisfy our heart because they come from him. That's what verse 17 says. With food and gladness, our hearts are satisfied. The things that we are striving for, that good life, that pursuit of being enough, those, those are the things that our heart are longing for. And we can find them in God. We can find them in a relationship with him. Look, the issue that Paul is pointing out with our idolatry is not so much that they were worshiping idols, although that is wrong. The issue with idolatry is not so much that they were worshiping idols, is that they were trying to pursue a satisfaction that was good in things that were less than God. The issue with idolatry is not that we want something, but that we're looking to fulfill that desire in something that isn't God. That's the issue with idolatry. But we see Paul taking their attention off of their idols and turning it to the one who gives everything that they need. Turning their attention to God who gives everything that we need. But the message that Paul gave them it was either too hard to believe or too good to be true. Because in verse 18, it says, even with these many words, they didn't really stop them from offering idols, offering to the idols. These religious neighbors, 
It was their own religion that prevented them from seeing the grace of God that was presented to them. It was their understanding that they had to sacrifice and offer things to Zeus and Hermes to get what they wanted. It was that religion that prevented them from seeing the grace of God presented to them. And that's always been the case. Like religion is what blinds us from seeing the goodness of God and seeing the grace of God. Religion says, if I obey, if I do everything that the gods tell me to do, if I offer sacrifices, if I give, if I work, well, then the gods will accept me and bless me. But Christianity says, what the gospel says, is that you are already accepted and loved, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And any blessing that you have in him now is received as a free gift. It's all by grace. I find it almost amusing that in this passage, what they really wanted was for the gods to become men and be with them. They wanted the gods to take up flesh and dwell amongst them. And yet Paul says, turn away from these vain things and turn to the living God. Because the living God, he did become man. He did take up flesh and live amongst us. That's what their hearts were longing for, was a living God who could come and be with them. Friends, what we offer to our neighbors is just that. The very thing that our hearts are longing for, to find satisfaction in, to find ourselves secure and accepted. Our God became man and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ. And we receive this, this life that we're pursuing. We receive this, this good life that we long for in a relationship with him. Because that life is not something that we work for, but it's something that Christ worked for on our behalf. It's not something that we offer sacrifices for. It's something that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for. We don't offer anything up to God for him to accept us. We look to Jesus who offered up his own life in our place, and through him we are accepted. What our neighbors are longing for is the opportunity to rest in that truth, to stop running the race of religion, but to rest in what Jesus has already done for them. I want that to be what we are known for as a church. I, I want every church that comes out of this church, however the Lord would want to bless us and the community around us, I want these churches to be known for offering rest for our souls. That's one of our values at Story Church. So we want people to find rest. The only way we find rest for our souls is if we offer people offer ourselves what our souls are desperately longing for, and that is Jesus. And so as a community, we worship together each week, reminding ourselves of that truth. 
that religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But what the gospel says is I am accepted because of the obedience of Jesus. That's what we celebrate every week. And that's why we gather. It's to offer people rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.